Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Great to chat to you again. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Reddy. Thank you, you so much. I'm very well, thank you. Now, I don't know if I may have missed this last week or any other time, but I, I just wanted to know, Chris, I mean, what lessons can we learn from this year Nobel Prize for Physics? What is interesting about it? If you can talk to us about that. Well, we've got Nobel Prizes for physics, chemistry, uh, and also physiology and medicine, which were all announced last week, as well as a couple of other bits and pieces as well. And so the whole clutch of them recognise a whole bunch of scientists who've devoted a lifetime to doing some very interesting work. The physics one dwelled on the neutrino. These are little packets of energy which can be used to explain how nuclear physics works, and particularly the sun. The work was actually done starting in the 1950s, and the people who won it, um, there's a group of them. Uh, in fact, they didn't get rewarded for their prize until 20 or 30 years later. So one of the re- criteria for winning the Nobel Prize appears to be longevity mm. as much as anything. The uh, medicine and physiology one is interesting because the winners there are parasitologists. One of them's a Chinese lady, Tuo-Wo, and what she discovered was the drug that became, or the, the agent that became artemisinin, and artemisinin is from uh, sweet wormwood, and it's now one of the most effective anti-malarial chemicals. And she made that discovery because she went delving into the textbooks of ancient Chinese herbal remedies and was able to use that historical information to go and look for a modern-day counterpart to whatever they were doing in the past and find that agent. And uh, the guys in mm-hmm. the chemistry prize, one of them was Tom Limdahl, but they're all biochemists who are interested in how DNA repairs itself. So effectively, how the genetic message is kept uh, with high integrity in cells, and, and that way you don't get cancer, for example. So an interesting uh, crop of, of prizes this year. Thank you so very much, uh, Chris. Okay, so uh, this sounds right, but uh, the tongue plays a role in learning a language. We often speak about mother tongue, but we're talking about the physical tongue, the actual tongue. Tell me about that. Yep. Well, there's a paper that's just come out this week. It's um, in the journal PNAS by Janet Worker and her colleagues. She's based at the University of British Columbia. And what she did was to ask the question, well, is language just about listening when you're trying to learn it, or does it have a role for your tongue to play too? And she took six-month-old babies that were born into English-speaking households, and she took 24 of those babies, very simple experiment, 
she was asking them to discriminate between two different types of D noise. One D noise that you make by putting your tongue behind your front teeth and making a D, and the other noise that you can make by turning your tongue almost upside down inside your mouth. So the underside of your tongue touches the roof of your mouth, and I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this at the moment trying to do mm. this sort of tongue contortion. You make a D sound. These two sounds actually are made in Hindi, and she wanted to use the language Hindi because it would be unfamiliar to the children. And what she found is that the children could easily discriminate between those two different D sounds. But then she gave the parents who had accompanied the children into the experiment a teething toy to put into the baby's mouth. And what no one realised, apart from the researchers, was that the teething toy would hold down the tongue in the infant. When they gave them this toy to play with, their ability to discriminate between those two different types of D noises completely fell to no better than chance. And you could say, oh, well, maybe they were just distracted by having something in their mouth. They then substituted a different toy that gave them the same oral stimulus, to a certain extent, but mm -hmm. didn't do anything to their tongue. And then their ability to discriminate between the two sounds went back up to its previous very powerful level. And their interpretation of this is that when babies are hearing sounds, they're mimicking the movements that you would need to make in order to produce said sound with their tongues, and that forms a very important part of the learning pathway, enabling them to link what a sound sounds like to how you would produce a sound and therefore what it might mean in the future. Mm -hmm. This has enormous implications because there are lots of disorders where young infants, for various reasons, including having tongue tie or having a cleft palate or babies that are in hospital for a long period of time and may have tubes in their mouths and things, which would stop their tongues from moving and could therefore impact on their future ability to master their mother tongue. Thank you very much. Very interesting indeed. And our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567 or Uh Johan in Belleville. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Um, I'm in the tire industry and I would like to know something from your gentleman. He said there's millions and millions of tires running on vehicles, trucks, cars, buckets, whatever. So there must be small particles of rubber as a tire worn down that needs to go somewhere. And I'm trying to find out for years what happened to this microorganism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, of tire rubber. There must be piles and piles lying next to the N1 or whatever. And I want to know what happened to that, please. Hello, Johan. You're correct. The tyres, as they wear out on your car, the reason they wear out is because as the tyre goes round, it slips against the road a little tiny bit, and in the same way that a pencil eraser rubbed across a piece of paper leaves little shards of rubber behind on the paper, your tyre leaves particles of rubber behind mm. on the road. And when you've got a worn-out tyre, it's worn out with the tyre surface down to the bottom reaches of the tread because that extra rubber has been rubbed away. And yes, you're completely correct, there are on-road surfaces, next to road surfaces, and going into the drains that flush water off of the road surfaces, all of these particles of rubber. And it's not just particles of rubber, because there's other stuff in there as well. There are sulphur particles, there are other bits and pieces which are added when the rubber is made, but it adds up to millions of tonnes of rubber all around the world every year. Thank you so much, Johan Mpo and Keith. I see your calls coming to you in a moment. Let's take a break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And yes, we are taking your questions. What are you curious about? What do you want Chris to tackle this morning? Let's go to uh, Mpo in Midrand. Good morning. 
good morning, Rudy. Mm. Um, Chris, a uh, quick question. What causes stuttering and uh, is there a cure for someone who stutters? I've had a brother who's been stuttering ever since I was young and he's still stuttering to date. Okay. Yes, for those people who who do have a stutter, it tends to feel extremely intimidating because the one thing that we know makes it worse is stress. And the one thing that people find stressful is having to speak either on the radio or to group, groups of people or even in groups of, say, family. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you feel stressed and intimidated, which makes you focus on the fact that you might stammer and that makes it even worse, so you're almost inevitably going to stammer, and someone who doesn't mm. even stammer starts to stammer when they get nervous. We don't know exactly what's going on in the brain, but people think it's some kind of feedback loop, which is working not quite right in a person who has a stutter. When you are speaking, the parts of your brain that encode language, in other words, there is a motor program running in your brain that has to receive the right instructions to make the words come out in the right way. In other words, make the right movements of your diaphragm, chest muscles, vocal cords, tongue, lips, and pattern that with the flow of air and in the right sequence to make the words that you want to string a sentence together. At the same time, we are listening to ourselves. We have information coming in to our ears, and that is being fed back onto our systems in order to enable us to speak at the right volume, at the right rate, put the right emphasis and emotion into the words that we want to. But obviously what's coming back in is being delayed relative to what's going out because what's going out's already gone out and you're on to the next sentence by the time your brain has processed what's now coming in. If you therefore attend to what's coming in too much, then it starts to interfere with your ability to make the next sentence. And one way to block a stutter is actually to stop listening to yourself. Some people find oh. that if they put headphones on and listen to white noise, just a hissing noise, it will go away. It's possible to make someone who doesn't have a stutter have a stutter or talk in a very halting way. If, and Reedy will know this because if when you are on the radio, mm. if you start being fed your own voice back to yourself Ooh. but with a delay of, say, half a second or so, it's excruciatingly oh. difficult to ignore yourself. It's, it's hard enough to ignore myself at the best of times. It's bad <laughs> enough hearing myself once, let alone more than once. But you will find it's yeah. really hard to get a sentence to flow properly. Indeed. And so we think that perhaps what's going on in someone who has a stutter is there's some kind of internal system which is in some way presenting information coming back into the brain in perhaps slightly the wrong order or at the wrong time or a failure of a system to suppress attending to what's coming in from your own voice back into your voice system and this is tripping up your ability to put sentences into a fluid system. Um, at the moment it is a theory. Uh, we actually find this very hard to test because normally when we want to do science, science investigations you would try and look at something other than a human like an animal and model the condition but obviously humans have speech uniquely in the way that we do so the only things we can really study are other humans and so we're slightly limited in terms of the, the ways in which we can go about investigating this but scientists are doing this with brain scanning techniques and other physiology experiments to try and work it out but those are the best theories we've come up with at the moment. Okay, and is it Keith? Yes, Keith in Pretoria. Good morning to you. Thank you for holding on. Welcome. Hello, Reedy and Chris. Yes. Can you tell me, please, why is it and how is it that plants and animals create oil? For example, an olive or the skin of an apple or a sweaty forehead. Yes, indeed. Oil is hydrocarbon. 
In other words, it's strings of carbon atoms linked together, surrounded by hydrogen. And the links between the carbon atoms can either have a single bond, one can think of that as like a piece of string or a spring connecting the two atoms, or a double bond, which is like two springs in parallel connecting the two atoms in the chain, and so on. Now, where do you get the carbon from? Well, in the case of a plant, plants take in energy from the sun using their leaves to soak up that solar energy. They absorb the energy using chlorophyll, the green pigment in their leaf, and they push the energy into a chemical pathway that ultimately produces, say, sugars. Where do they get the carbon from for the sugars? Well, they draw it out of the air in the form of carbon dioxide. They mix the carbon dioxide with water, and that's where they make glucose, because the formula for photosynthesis, this process I'm describing, is six lots of uh, carbon dioxide plus... Um, Yep, plus water, goes to C6H12O6, in other words, and some oxygen. In other words, you make sugar by merging carbon dioxide and water together and you produce oxygen as a byproduct. Now, that oxygen, sorry, that sugar can then be put into other biochemical reactions in cells that will take the carbon out of the sugar, break it up into chunks of two carbon atoms long and then link them together into chains and that's how you get your fats why do we do that well sugar is harder to store because it attracts water to itself and that this can make cells swell up the amount of energy stored in a sugar molecule is about half to a third of the amount of energy you can store in a fat molecule for the same weight and therefore if you make an oil you've got a very 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 big dense rich source of energy which is very compact which you can store very easily and so lots of organisms including bacteria micro other microorganisms like algae fungi us and plants will have metabolic pathways that enable them to convert those sugars into fats to produce a long-term reservoir of energy but also fats are absolutely critical because all of our cells consist of a membrane which is a bit like an oily layer around the outside of our cells which helps them to establish the environment in the cell and keep it separate from the environment outside the cell. So fats are absolutely essential for life which is why these processes probably evolved in the first place. Lovely question Keith, thank you so very much. Um, let's go to uh, Pam in Glen Vista, good morning to you. Good morning, Reedy. Uh, what I'd like to find out is about allergies. If you develop an allergy in adulthood, example, a grass allergy, which you haven't had as a child, why do you develop it in adulthood? And what is missing in your body in terms of resistance or antibodies that you can't cope anymore with these allergies? Hi, Pam. Well, the answer is that an allergy is an immune response gone wrong. And although most allergies are manifest when we're young, you can develop an allergy or an immune problem at any time in your life. So although you don't tend to see it so often, because most allergies happen in the young, it's not impossible, and therefore you're, you're not that exceptional if it happens to you, you're just a bit unfortunate. Why we have allergy is that the immune system normally learns to discriminate between friend and foe. There's a system in place called tolerance, which is where the immune system is programmed to ignore things that are not harmful. For example, food is full of things that you could be allergic to, but your immune system is programmed to ignore the good stuff in food, to realise that this is innocuous and is not going to do you any harm, and therefore to let you eat food with impunity. 
On the other hand, your immune system is programmed to recognise things that are bad, like things on bacteria and fungi, viruses, and to attack them. There is some kind of process in place that controls that regulation. And when it goes off kilter, for instance, a certain set of cells that would control your ability to tolerate pollen, mm -hmm. if those cells are lost, now your immune balance shifts. And instead of tolerating and ignoring the pollen, your immune system starts to be able to respond to the pollen. And it's a bit like having policemen on the streets. They restore or maintain law and order. But if you take the policemen away from one street and you put them in another street, or you take them away full stop, because of government cuts, which is what's happening in Britain and many other countries at the moment, then actually what happens is that the balance between law-abiding citizens mm -hmm. and naughty people will shift, and the naughty people will increase in prevalence. They won't totally take over to start with, because there might still be the odd police car going down the road, but they may shift the balance, and that's what happens when you get an allergy. You start to see the ability of certain things that shouldn't react to stuff beginning to react to stuff. But that can happen at any age, and probably as we get older, our immune system our immune system becomes a bit less efficient at doing the jobs it does. And this is probably why, in some older people, these new, in inverted commas, new allergies can disclose themselves. Let's go to Lucky. Lucky in Orlando East. Good morning. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Chris. Uh, a quick one. Um, normally when I see the pictures of the nervous system, they will show many veins, many veins, uh, some going to the uh, to the to the brain, uh, uh, supposedly uh, uh, transporting oxygen through the flow of blood. But when they talk of a blood clot, and I was reading a story during the week that there was a blood clot that means a blockage, and then oxygen was not taken. The person is now brain damaged. So if one is blocked, why can't the rest, all the other veins, transport do the job? If one vein, or do they all get blocked, or only one vein get blocked and causes the damage? Mm. Okay. Okay. Stroke is the consequence of an interruption of blood flow to your brain. And stroke can happen because the blood is interrupted by a blockage, some kind of thrombus, as we tend to call it, coming into a blood vessel, lodging in the blood vessel, because the thrombus, the lump of something, the, usually a clot, is bigger than the blood vessel it's trying to go down. And this stops the flow of blood going downstream. Now, blood comes into the head in arteries and it leaves the brain in veins. You can actually get blood clots or thrombus happening in either of those two things and both will potentially starve the blood of oxygen. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when you have a stroke, it's because a thrombus or some kind of blood clot has got into the brain from outside the head. So 80% of strokes are caused by a thrombus and the vast majority, about 80% of them, come from blood vessels outside the head. Commonly the artery in your neck, the carotid artery. And sometimes, if you've got a bit of hardening of the arteries, you can get a, a thrombus forming there because the artery wall is rough, and so things called platelets, which help your blood to clot, stick onto the rough patch, and they make a little clump, which can, because the blood is whooshing up there at, at say, 30 metres a second, can detach the thrombus occasionally and push it up into your brain. It will then float downstream until it gets to a blood vessel that is smaller than it is, and then it will stop. Now, although the brain has a very good circulatory system, which is, which is what we call highly anastomotic, there are lots of different routes that blood can take to get to the tissue, eventually you will get to a patch of brain which is depleted of its blood supply if you block off a big 
artery or a relatively large artery mm. and because the brain is so metabolically active it's got so much uh, of a demand for oxygen and sugar if you interrupt its blood supply for even a fraction of a second then the cells begin to run out of energy and they begin to die and once you lose brain cells you can't get them back and this is why a stroke is so devastating because you will lose tissue that you then cannot replace. Hmm. And speaking of uh, the, the the brain and our bodies, physiology, here's an SMS here. Pizzo uh, in Somerset West, dear naked scientist, do our bodies store information only in the brain? For instance, can an organ transplant result in new memories for the recipient from the donor? Ultimately, could we lose memories by losing parts of our bodies? if indeed they are stored in other parts. That's the SMS. Well, the strict definition of a memory in terms of the psychology of a memory is a pattern of activity generated in your brain, an engram, which is either maintained electrically by nerve cells talking to each other actively or in connections between nerve cells. So therefore, if you transplanted a heart or a liver, one wouldn't expect those connections in your brain to change. If you transplanted a brain, then you may have some different <laughs> memories because it would be someone else's brain. But no, memory in that sense is not stored in other organs in the body. But other kinds of definition of memory, this may apply. Because, for instance, every cell in your body, with a few exceptions, has got a complete copy of your genetic information in it. And that genetic information, your DNA has got what we call epigenetic tags applied to it. And epigenetic tags are chemical markers that act almost like dimmer switches. They can turn certain genes on or off. And these epigenetic markers can be set or adjusted by the environment in which you find yourself or the environment you grow up in. And so that means that if someone gives you an organ and they grew up in a certain situation the epigenetic markers applied to the DNA running in that organ could be quite different, reflecting the upbringing of that person. Because, in other words, it's, the, it's evolution's way of tuning genetics a little bit more to suit the environment you evolve in. If you get that organ, you therefore could regard that as bringing in some kind of memory. It's a chemical memory, and it's a DNA memory, but it's potentially a memory of the environment you were conceived in nonetheless. And therefore, in some respects, yes, an organ transplant can transplant into your body certain kinds of new memories from your donor. Phew, Pizza, thank you for asking that. Let's go to, uh, do we have time for Praline very quickly, Praline in Midrand? Yes, just quickly. Uh, I, be, I was pregnant last year, and before that, I used to love bananas. But last year during my pregnancy, I just I couldn't stand the sight or the taste of bananas. My son, however, now uh, he can just eat bananas, you know, day and night, no problem, uh, as a baby. So does taste develop irrespective of whether he was exposed to it in, in utero? How does that work? Well, you know, it's really funny because my wife loves things like blue cheese. Stilton mm. and other blue cheeses, very strongly flavoured things like that, absolutely adores them. And, of course, you mustn't eat soft cheese when you're pregnant because mm. there's a small but significant risk that you may acquire an infection like listeria. So my wife had to issue those lovely cheeses she liked very much when she was pregnant, but she did occasionally have a little bit of them. And also things strongly flavoured things like smoked salmon, which is fine when you're pregnant, but mm -hmm. is quite strongly flavoured. Our daughter... Uh, absolutely adores those things <laughs> and one has to wonder whether 
a little occasional dabble when you are pregnant yeah. uh, in these strongly flavoured things could influence the developing taste of a baby. We know that babies during development become acquainted with and adapted to the sound of their mother's voice. We know for a fact that certain chemicals including strong flavours like you would find in cheeses and things, go into the bloodstream, they can go across the placenta and get into babies. They also filter into breast milk. And so it's perfectly possible mm. that uh, the reason my daughter loves these things is because some of these flavours were coming out in the breast milk once she was born and my wife was back on them in a big way. <laughs> and, and that's why she developed a taste for them. When a woman is pregnant, however, and feeling pretty pukey at times, as you probably know, Reedy, uh, mm. some foods just exacerbate the pukiness. And you just think, oh, I really can't bear the thought of that. And then afterwards, you associate the fact that you felt evil when you were pregnant, and, and what made you feel even more evil was that smell or that taste. And you, you kind of think, I don't like that anymore. Mm. On the other hand, when a new baby's born, it starts with a completely blank sheet unless the parent has obviously encouraged it to like certain strong flavors like my daughter does and so as a result those babies will acquire their own taste profile and they, they like things which are simple fairly fairly strong but not too overwhelming flavors mm -hmm. because babies are not very good at seeing a fusion of flavors their nervous system can't interpret lots of different flavors mixed together initially they like flavors that are nice and clean and simple to start with but which are interesting and i think that's probably where banana ticks that box hmm Sound all sounds familiar. Uh, Chris, have a lovely weekend. We'll see you again next week. Next week. Thanks, really. Bye, everybody. Bye -bye. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that's investing twenty billion pounds in R and D over the next two years, the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.